You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. I've got a story for you guys uh, here to kind of kick things off, and this story is going to end with a problem and some irony, just to tell you real quick. So in 1899, a secret cabal of media magnates Okay, really, they were just like low-level beat reporters. Um, But when do you get a chance to say media magnates? Not very often. They gathered in a dimly lit tavern in downtown Denver, Colorado, desperate to drum up more interest and sales for their respective newspapers. They concocted this clever deception. With Swiftly approaching deadlines, they needed something big and salacious to like accomplish their goals. They needed a story that would like pique the interest of their readers, a story that wouldn't be easily like fact checked or challenged, and they needed it to be in and out of the news cycle very quickly. So they crafted a story about an American civil engineer. Keep in mind, this is 1899. Um, about an American civil engineer who was on his way to China via Denver, via Chicago. And the reason that they invented for his global travels was this, that the ruling dynasty of China, the Qing dynasty, had decided that it was time to tear down that pesky 13,170-mile-long wall that had been built centuries before. And then they were going to use all of the bricks and the rubble to build a road from Nanking to Siberia. So that's the story that they landed on. They all kind of buried that story in their newspapers. And then the rest of the stories that they wrote was the firm of this American contractor, this American engineer that he represented, wanted the construction contract, right? So, so, So crazy, yes. Believable enough, absolutely. So this outrageous deception like spread quickly, like major media outlets covered the story, overlooking their like journalistic responsibilities to check sources and the validity of the story. The story swiftly spread beyond the borders of the United States until it met its final resting place where it would have a seismic effect. It landed behind the Great Wall of China inciting fear and distrust of any foreign presence in China. It would eventually be the spark that would ignite the Boxer Rebellion. It would lead to an uprising by a secret organization called the Society of the Righteous and Harmonious Fists, clearly led by the RZA of the Wu-Tang Clan. The Boxer Rebellion would inspire the Chinese Revolution of 1911, which would bring about the end of the last great dynasty of China, marking the end of dynastic rule in China and the establishment of the Republic of China, which would eventually fall to Mao and his revolutionaries, and which then would establish what we know today as the People's Republic of China. So that's the story that I'm telling. The, the, the problem is, It's a lie, but not the part about the lie that was made up, right? So this week I found this story and I was like, oh, that's such a great story to kick off a sermon about like being a people that are, that are honest, right? So the fake news part of the story is true. The part of these reporters making up this story, right? 
But the fact that it led to the fall of China is the part that's not true. That wasn't invented until like the 1950s, right? So you can see uh, the problem that I was about to tell you. So I found that story earlier in this week and I was so excited to have it be the lead off. Then I realized the whole thing is a lie, right? And so the irony is this, because I was like, well, I'm preaching a sermon about like you you shan't lie. And I was really tempted to just lie to you guys and sell that story. Like, so in a sermon about not lying, I was tempted to lie. And, and like I found out about it Thursday, and I was like, oh, that go, there goes my whole intro. I don't have time to come up with something new. How much do these people really know about the Boxer Rebellion? Pro- probably not much, right? So you can see how like it was so tempting for me to just stand up here and tell that story, right? But the reality is, and this, this week, I was fixated on untruths. It was hard to escape. Like, the re, like every piece of media from television to, to podcast that I consumed this week, at the very core of the story that was being told or the conversation that was being had, deception was at the heart of it, wrestling through the implications of deception. Every conversation I had this week was about that. I mean, it could be as subtle as like watching the Lucille Ball documentary on Amazon and discovering that that's not her real name and she made up this fake persona, like she deceived people, right? To like, listen, as innocent as a conversation as like the guys in my hub community going out for dinner this week and drinks, right? And so we started off at the barn, and I won't say who, but one of us had a tasty meal and some dessert at the barn, right? And then we moved our way down to the the squeaky cork, is that what it's called? And a couple others of us got dessert, and then one of us, who shall remain nameless, said, maybe I can go for second dessert. To which all of us said, why would you not? And then this individual was like, but then I don't know, like, could I tell my wife that I had two desserts? And, and then the rest of us were like, absolutely not. You don't need to. Just go for it. It's fine, right? So, like, you can see it. Like, it's just so, like, untruth and dishonesty. It's, like, so pervasive in our world, right? Because the fact is our sin-filled world was formed with a simple and subtle lie. So how could it not be? right? Lies start wars. Lies end marriages. They destroy relationships and communities, and everyone does it, which would be a way better book. Everyone lies, right? But dishonesty and lack of truth was never God's intention for his good creation. And so as we approach the conclusion of our series through the Ten Commandments this morning, we got one more week, we're going to look at the ninth commandment, which most commonly is summed up as this, do not lie. But the actual commandment itself, it's a bit longer than that, a a bit wordier than that, and way more complex than simply not lying, with far more subtle nuances than just that simple summary. There's a particular context in mind that Moses is writing this into, and it's the courtroom, right? And so Exodus 20.16 reads this, do not give false testimony against your neighbor, right? So this is not like as terse or as hard-hitting or immediately universally applicable as do not murder, cheat, 
or steal, like we just understand and get those on the surface. So we really need to pause and take some things into like careful consideration because this is way more complex than a cursory reading leads us to. So we're going to sink our teeth into this, totally find some clarity and find some substance. What is God about when he commands his people to be a people that are about truth and honesty? So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your kind and gracious words to us, words that invite us into a deeper and more true reality than we experience in this world, a world that is littered with the effects of sin, and yet you created something more beautiful for us to experience, and you're restoring that thing day after day to your good intention. And so God, may we as your people hear these words today as an invitation to understand, to explore, and live in the reality of your good creation. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's just begin with like a very simple definition of of, of lying, right? Um, And and what does it mean? And, and, And most importantly, what's the point of not bearing false witness? So specifically, too, as it relates within this commandment. So we're going we're gonna to see like there's these kind of deep implications of this commandment. And we're going to look at them first at like black and white. So we're just going to walk through a very black and white kind of discussion about what does the scripture say about dishonesty. It does not paint a very pretty picture. And then we're going to talk about the reality that like there's just these gray areas that we have to explore when it comes to this conversation. And then finally, we're going to bring the whole conversation into color, right? So, so what's a lie? Well, specifically, what does this command have in mind, right? Sit the, the, the scene, the court, the scene's a courtroom setting, and it's about saying things about your neighbor who, who, who you are supposed to love and build up, saying things about them that are not true, right? So, so justice is in mind here. We need to keep that in view, and not just as it pertains to like the people that live next to you, but there's also reality that, that is extending beyond ethnic Israel to that term neighbor to say like to the people around you, to your neighbors, your neighboring countries and, and, and groups around you, do not bear false witness about, about them. So, but back to like what is this definition of lying? This professor and theologian, I think, Um, John Frame is his name, sums it up really concisely and defines it as this, a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to harm them. So we we typically think of lying as something that we do with our words, which which would be correct. It is. Like, we, we, we do it all the time. Think about how James talks about the effect of our speech in chapter three. He says that our tongues, despite being small, can like level these like big boasts about ourselves, or, or it can be the spark that ignites a raging fire. It can be this stain that infects everything about us, that our tongue is like untamable and it's restless. It's full of like these poisonous words. Utter destruction is what we can level from the things that we say. But our actions and our behavior, behavior can also lie and betray. Lying is not only what you say, but also what you practice. So it's also this, it's, it's intentional. Like we're not talking about like miscommunication or a misunderstanding. This is referring to an intentional and deliberate deception that would harm another image bearer. So we're also, that's important. We're not, we're not talking about 
enemies here. Like, look at how it's phrased. We're talking about neighbors. So here's the deal. When you're at war, the rules of engagement, they, they, they count on deception and subterfuge, right? Um, they count on propaganda. We, we see it happening in real time before us as we speak. We can see the rumors of wars, the lies of war, the propaganda of war, right? So it makes sense that you, like, lie to your enemy, but he's saying, hey, we're not talking about enemies here. We're talking about neighbors. We're talking about how you actually take an enemy and make them your neighbor and your friend, right? Sports. Sports always include an element of deception. I mean, what is a trick play if not deception, right? So finally, lying seeks to do harm to a neighbor, right? It takes or alters something from them that's difficult to restore. What others believe about them, their good name, their reputation, ultimately being deceptive about somebody, your neighbor, is, is taking their identity. So, so let's look at how the scriptures talk about lying. This is the black and white part. The Bible paints a very clear picture about this command. It reveals like the very stark contrast between telling lies and being a people that, that live out of and speak truth. So, so bearing false witness in court, lying in everyday conversations, deceiving others for personal fame and gain, not, not only undermines order in culture, we have to see it as being anti-God, okay? And, and as easy and as harmless as it is to like say just like a subtle, small half-truth, like According to the scriptures, as we're going to see, lying is a, a big deal. God treats it seriously. J just look at these, these contrasts, right? Because on the one hand, God never lies. We're told by the scripture that God never lies. In fact, we, we're told that it's impossible for him to lie. So this is going to be also like my most proof texty sermon, although technically it's not proof texting, but we're going to have a lot of verses to look at, okay? But then how the Bible talks about Satan, on the other hand, right? It talks about him that he is the father of lies. And when we first meet him, he's left his throne of lies and he's slithering through the garden. And he's look, like, look at this. He's like deceiving God's kids with his words, right? We see that account in Genesis. And then we get to the, the, the Proverbs and the, the writer of Proverbs 12 tells us that God hates lies, but delights in the truth. Look at this. Lying lips are detestable to the Lord, but faithful people are his delight. So Paul tells us in Romans 1.25 that the essence of sin is exchanging truth for lies. And he goes on to say in chapter 3.13 that everyone lies. Quoting from a few different Psalms here, Paul writes this, their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, right? And then the fate of liars is bleak. You go to Psalm 5, 6, it's described in the scriptures like this. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people, right? So lies express this. They express unbelief and they lead to destruction. So the good news is the good news of the gospel is then the word of truth that counters these lies. Truthful speech reveals a heart fixed on Jesus and his goodness. Listen to how like these verses kind of juxtapose that concept. First, um, for the dishonest person, Proverbs 8, 7. A fool's mouth is his devastation and his lips are a trap 
for his life. So, so being dishonest leads to this destruction, right? And then Psalm 24, 3-4 says, and the opposite of that, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. So a couple things. One, it's important to understand that beyond just saying lies and being dishonest with our actions, there is this truth that the scripture is just revealing that there's such a way to exist just in deception because the world in its sin filled condition is deceptive, right? But there's another reality that we're invited to experience, which is this deeper truth that God created. And, and so we are appalled by what is false, but we believe God in his truth, right? You go to the scriptures from the garden to Sinai, to Psalms and Proverbs, the gospel and acts, the epistles through the book of Revelation, the story of truth and lies, it's told in a very black and white tone, right? There's no subtlety to how God feels about deception and how he feels about seeking truth. So on the one side, you have God, you have truth, you have the gospel, his people and honesty and joy. On the other side, you have Satan and you have deception, you have destruction, you have misery, right? So while there's this certain like straightforwardness then to the contrast, like truth and lies, it turns out despite existing in what I would call a post-truth culture, that truth is pretty black and white according to scriptures. It only concerns itself with binaries, either it's true or it's false, right? So, so here are four ways, and I, I wanted to get into this because I think this is important, there's four ways that we kind of live dishonestly or kind of represent what is dishonest, right? So we're going to walk through these real quick. Um, they're not a complete list, but we're going to start with kind of four ways that I think are probably most important today in our culture and, and who we are. The first one is just simply this. We'll start with the sin of reviling, which is not a word or term that we use often, although we've just walked through that term quite often in the book of Mark and, and in Peter. They both talked about that and Jesus' effect with that. So if you think about just the sheer number of times this is mentioned throughout scripture, that specific word reviling, right? It's safe to assume that it's something that we should pay careful attention not to do. But, but what is it? What is reviling? Well, it's when we criticize, but our intention is not to help, but to harm or to hurt, right? Intention is not to add to somebody, but to take from them. It's usually done in anger, and it's abusive, and it's insulting, right? In the Psalms, reviling is a tactic of God's enemies. Proverbs 12, 18 describes the reviler as there is one who speaks rashly like a piercing sword, right? So it, it, it makes the list of the things that God abhors in Paul's epistles. Jesus rails against reviling in the Sermon on the Mount. If, if other forms of dishonesty that we're going to look at today, these next couple of things, if they are like a finely tuned blade of a surgeon, reviling is like the, de the, like the dull, heavy warhammer, and it just levels using like blunt force trauma to a person's identity. And listen, if there's any issue in the modern church that reveals our biblical illiteracy, it's the casual, thoughtless, and frequent action of the sin of reviling, okay? 
Now, before you call me a boomer, because I'm not, I'm Gen X, just hear me out, okay? Because the reality is this, all you have to do is turn to our social media activity to see how true this is, right? Where we routinely tear down the name, the good name of our neighbor, right? Emboldened by the lack of face-to-face -face interaction, we're intoxicated with the validation of likes and shares, we become virtual assassins, we're armed and fully loaded with keyboards, fueled with our outrage, and we go and we revile all day long, right? At the end of the day, like social media is just a new tool for an old sin. The problem is not with the technology. It's with us. It's with what's in our hearts. We revile with sarcasm that tears down our neighbor. We revile with cleverly crafted prayer requests that only serve as smoke screens for like gossip or slander. We revile in emails and text threads, bumper stickers, and casual conversations. We do it in any context by any means possible, especially when we perceive that there's an opportunity in this interaction to raise our own value by pushing down someone else's, right? So you can see how this is just a fundamental flaw in our thinking when we revile. Who loves reviling? Who's the best at reviling? Satan, the father of lies, the accuser of the brothers and sisters. When we revile, we look and sound like his disciples. But Jesus calls us to follow him, not the enemy. And Jesus refused to revile. Even when it could have saved his life, he embodied truth. And as his followers, we should, like Peter says about Jesus, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, all envy and all slander, and instead build up each other with our speech. Speak what is true of your fellow image bearer. So the second way is this. The second way that we commit this act is, and this is a little bit interesting, it's the sin of flattery, right? And I was a little convicted about this one. Um, last Sunday, if you were here, Matt killed it. Matt crushed it. It was such a great sermon. I texted him that night and just said, like, man, here's all the great things, right, about you. So, is that flattery? We're, we're going to walk through this, okay? Because flattery, it, it's, it's complicated here, right? Because, because when is a compliment, like, not a compliment, right? Well, it's not a compliment. It's not flat. Like, it, it's wrong when it's offered up to manipulate or control. So I had to later this week go like, man, was I trying to manipulate or control Matt in that text where I was like singing his praises? Yeah, maybe a little bit just to get him to preach more because he's good at it. But like, but no, right? So there's a difference here, right? So flattery is this. It's manipulation masked as praise. It seeks to kind of like deceptively gain someone's trust, right? It puts them in your debt. It's a form of like grooming them so that you can control and manipulate them. Like, and I get it, right? It's easy to dismiss flattery as like something that's relatively harmless. Also, who doesn't love to receive a little bit of flattery? Like I was on a bike ride Friday and I was at the top of Dimple Hill in Corvallis and at the top of Dimple Hill was a pastor from a church in Corvallis and then a friend that I worked with um, in youth ministry at another church who's now on staff at a different church. Super complicated story. The most important thing is I sat there for like 10 or 15 minutes 
And they just were laying all of this flattery on me, right? They're like, oh, working with Randall in ministry. And then the other pastor, I like his son, his, his son-in-law grew up in my ministry. And they were just like heaping it upon me. And I'm like, this is awesome. I want to sit in the bask in the glory of me, right? Now they were harmless in that. So you can see like how this becomes confusing. Like where does it end? Where does a compliment end? Where does this thing of like flattery begin? What's the difference between the two, right? So it's easy to dismiss, right? It's harmless. It, it's what's wrong with showering someone with affection and flattery. But, but the author of Proverbs 26, 28 denounces it, like in the strongest of terms, says, a lying tongue hates those it crushes and the flattering mouth causes ruin, right? So, so flattery, like reviling, is, is speech filled with hate. It, it's just more subtle in its delivery. So we should pay attention to how Jesus responds to it, right? Jesus was not misled by flattery, by the flattery of the Pharisees when he's confronted by them. He, they, they use it to kind of conceal their, their plan and their hatred towards him. But look to Mark 12, 14 through 15. It's an interesting interaction. It says, when they came, they said to him, teacher, we know that you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks. So they're flattering. Like, man, you say true things. You're so, like, you're so confident in who you are. You don't even care what other people think, Right. You don't, you don't show partiality. You're such a good person. You have compassion for every way. The, the way that you teach, right, man, of God, it's truthful. It's awesome. It's amazing. And then here's the trick. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And then Jesus responds this way. But knowing their hypocrisy, see, he doesn't fall for the flattery. He said to them, why are you testing me? He sees through it, right? So if you take that at face value, what they said was completely true, but Jesus saw the motive of their hearts and calls them out. Why? Well, who's the best at this? Once again, Satan. He's the father of flattery. He daftly delivers it with subtle precision, right? Before he utters a word to Eve, we're told that he says this, the serpent was more subtle than any beast in the field, and his deceptive words prove it, right? He goes to Adam, he goes to Eve, and he tells them just eat from this tree and you'll be just like God, like you deserve it. You're so good. You're great, right? He does the same thing to Jesus in the wilderness, tempts him with this flattery. Flattery lures us towards these unholy alliances. It elevates our sense of self beyond what is justified. And when we practice it, we conform to the image of the serpent. Are we supposed to give each other genuine encouragement and praise? Absolutely. Paul tells us that in places like Ephesians and Thessalonians, like build each other up with our words. But our edifying words must be truthful, accurate, sincere, and selfless in their motivation. So you should say something about somebody and get nothing in return for it. Because when we overpraise others, we tempt them into like an unholy alliance with pride and with their ego, or we tempt them into like an unholy alliance with us so we can manipulate and control them to serve our purposes. You got my eye on you, Matt. <laughs> so we must recognize like flattery for what it is, right? An aggression that produces pride. So praise rightly offered to somebody will inspire humility in them. But truthful praise offered in a genuine encouragement towards somebody, it actually is what fulfills the ninth command. Up next, the sin of silence, okay? Now, this one can be a little bit confusing because like several places in the Bible, 
like we're told that like we should remain silent, that our silence actually displays wisdom. So we, though often too often neglect holding our tongues when we should be quiet, right? But Solomon reminds us of this in Ecclesiastes. He says that there's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak, right? So think about the courtroom setting of this. When, when we remain silent, right, when our neighbor is being falsely accused or attacked and we stand back in silence, our silence can be as brutal as a reviling attack from their enemies. Sinful silence, like the sin of flattery, is subtle also. We can hide behind it. We can kind of conceal our, feel, our fears of like engaging and confronting behind it. We, we can kind of hide behind like the fact that we are meant to be truth tellers behind silence. And listen, I get it. There are times and there are circumstances when we just don't know whether we should say something, right? You've been in those, right? Before we were like, I don't know. Should I say something? Should I remain silent? But if we know that our words are needed, if our words could be helpful, if our words could be edifying, if they could be encouraging, if they could actually counter a deception or a lie, and we remain silent, we are as guilty as bearing false witness as the reviler who began the lie in the first place. So there's times where our silence can be sinful, right? Who deals in sinful silence? Satan, right? He likes better nothing better than to silence the voices of those who know they should speak. When we silence truth tellers, when we remain silent ourselves, we conform to Satan's image instead of the image of Christ. And then finally, this last one, the sin of misattribution, okay? So Matt walked us a few weeks ago through the third commandment, right? And it's prohibition of co-opting our name with God's name to kind of enhance our reputation, right? So in the ninth command, we are forbidden from co-opting our neighbor's good name. So the sin of misattribution tempts us, right, to either like garner credit or to kind of like shift blame at our neighbor's expense, right? So, so I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Here's a prime example. I could blame Whitney, right, for that announcement and the mistitling of that slide, but she didn't make that slide. I wish she did, but I made it, right? So I could shift blame to Whitney right now and go like, oh, you know, but it's on me, right? So that's it, like walking you through, like shifting blame, like, right? So that begins to, to be the problem here with misattribution, right? When we bear false witness, when we allow our name to receive glory that belongs to somebody else, right, that's sinful. That's what we're doing here. And, and then just like we can exalt our own plans by attaching God's name to it, we can exalt our own efforts by concealing the name of others who actually did the work, right? Right? So, so when we commit this misattribution here, this deception, what we're really doing is we're just, we're masking our laziness with someone else's hard work. Any, anytime we accept praise for work that kind of exceeds the work that we actually did or performed, we are committing this sin of misattribution, this subtle deceptive sin. So it's also true when we like shift blame for sins that like we should own. When we're confronted with our own sin, it's our first impulse to shift blame. I see this, listen, I've got three children in my home, right? It's shocking how nobody ever made the mess, right? I'm certain that I didn't make the mess. I'm certain that my wife didn't make the mess. And we're just perplexed that none of our three children made the mess, right? 
Um, I mean, they're all blaming each other, but, but you know how that goes, right? So when we do that, you're, we're breaking the ninth word. We, we label our neighbor as our excuse. We steal honor by shifting blame. Unfortunately, this only begins to then amplify the offense that is being like kind of mitigated in the first place. So who is the master of misattribution? Well, Satan, right? He's the OG of identity theft, right? The scripture tells us that he shows up and he masquerades as an angel of light. He celebrates when we steal glory from others because in doing so, we conform to his image. He loves it when we shift blame because it marks us as his disciples, right? So the opposite of misattributed glory then is to honor one another by giving others credit rather than rushing to steal it. So we, we must be a people that acknowledge and celebrate the contributions of others, recognize that it's God's activity, not ours. Rather than shifting blame, we must be a people quick to own our sin, sin that is ours alone to own. We must make full and frequent co confessions without qualification. So, so that's the black and white of it all, right? However, life is far too complex, and we see the complexities of that reality in Scripture, right? So, so what do we do with things like this, like the Hebrew midwives in the story of Exodus who deliberately lied to Pharaoh? What, what do we do about Rahab in Jericho? What do, what do we do because she hid the spies with the deception and lied, right? So, so there are all these like gray areas that we walk into that life brings up, right? N not many, but, but some. And it begs the question, like, is there a noble lie, right? The life of David confronts us with that question and serves as a good case study for, like, life's gray situations. I'm only going to list a few. His whole story is riddled with this, right? First Samuel 19, we're confronted with this, like, really challenging story. King Saul wants David dead. But Michael, who is David's wife, and here's the complexity of this story, also Saul's daughter, um, intercedes and saves her husband from her father who wants her husband dead. So Saul sends these messengers slash assassins to David's house to watch him kill him. And the plan was to ambush him, right? But Michael, she lets the cat out of the bag. So she, she, she lets go of this one deception, tells David, her husband, hey, they're here to kill you. He escapes out the window, right? He, then Michael, she kind of pulls like a Ferris Bueller and she puts a, like a decoy in the bed. She takes this idol, right? So they have this idol in their house. Way to break the second commandment, David. Covered in, she covers it in like in goat's hair and she lays it on the bed and then she takes some pillow with more goat's hair. I don't know why she has access to so much goat hair, but she makes basically a, a, a figure of David in the bed with goat's hair and then she dresses it in David's clothes and then the people come in, they're like, oh, where's David? Oh, he's in bed. So she, then she lies to them and she deceives her father, Saul, right, to save her husband, David's life. And that's just one of many stories. Like, is she justified in that, right? That's one of many stories in David's life where being less than honest actually produces a positive or a righteous outcome. So, so what do we say about those gray scenarios? Is there such a thing as a noble lie? Are there times when it may be the right thing to do to not tell the truth or the full truth. So here's how we process this, right? Truth telling and being people of the truth is what is normative in God's kingdom. So then the burden of proof should be on deception. Like, is there enough 
proof that not being fully honest in that situation would actually save somebody's life or produce, right? So, so deception almost has to prove that it's better than honesty before we employ it, okay? The ninth command places the burden of proof on those who seek to justify deception. So here's three observations about these scenarios that kind of pull us into these gray areas and these questions. So first one is this. These are exceptional circumstances, not normal, okay? So when we process the gray areas of life, when it comes to honesty, recognize that in these conditions, they're exceptional, they're not normal. They are highly unusual, they're extraordinary. The Bible's a big book with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of historical stories and accounts These examples are unusual and extremely rare where you see somebody having to go like, okay, what's the logistics of me being less than honest here? The second one is this. The person who is righteously deceived presents as an enemy rather than a neighbor. So the person that's being lied to with this noble lie, they're actually an enemy in this situation. So in each scenario, the threat level is severe. Even deadly life and death were at stake. And then the third thing is this. A righteous person steps forward to act on behalf of another. So all these stories in the Old Testament, the midwives, Rahab, Michael, the one doing the righteous deception is not saving her own skin, but becoming, coming to the life and death rescue of someone else. And it should not be lost that every example that I gave is a woman saving a man in these stories, right? So we've seen the truth as black and white in scriptures, and we've discussed how it can turn like real gray real quick in real life, right? So what's the truth in full color, right? And we have to go there because, because ending on the gray like the very rare, highly unusual, extraordinary scenarios in which you may go like, man, is it better to tell a lie here? Is it better to omit the fact that I had second dessert, right? Where we may have this chance like to, to deceive an enemy or to save someone else's life, right? If we ended there, it, it wouldn't actually give us any more clarity on what is actually true. And it's not necessarily like good news, right? Because most of us most of us will never face a scenario where us being less than honest is going to save somebody's life, right? So those scenarios are not where we get our bearings related to truth telling. As Jesus followers, our aim is not minimal truth, but maximal trustworthiness, right? That's why Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 4:15, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 25 to say, therefore, putting away all lying, speaking the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. So this is who we want to be known as, as a community of people who care about truth, who delight in truth, whose very existence is, is by trusting, we're formed as a community by trusting in ultimate truth and reality. That is truth in full color. We have to renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice deceit, and we don't mark it in lies. That's our aspiration. That's our dream in color, not in gray. And then the truth comes into color in the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus who showed up 
and did seemingly to our eyes extraordinary things. Things that didn't seem normal to us, but in fact, Jesus was revealing that in his kingdom, these things that he did are what is normal. The truth is brought into full color in the person of Jesus because he showed up to his enemies and did not deceive deceive them, but in full truth laid down his life for them. Truth is brought into full color in the person of Jesus because he was the one righteous person who stepped forward to act on behalf of not just one person, but all of creation, dying in our place for our sin so we could be restored to God, ultimate truth, and reality. I'm going to pray as we respond and know this. The invitation today is this, to go to the table of truth, to take to the table of truth all the times that you've broken the ninth word and take to the table of truth a confession of forgiveness, of understanding that I'm a person that just inside of me has this capability to say things that are false about my other image bearers. But at the end of the day, I bring that to the table because I want to experience something far greater than that. I want to experience nothing but truth between me and my fellow image bearers. And the only way I can do that is through what is offered at the table, which is Jesus's righteous sacrifice. The one person who could actually step up and act on our behalf by giving his body, by spilling his blood on our behalf. So let's respond to who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. He is, in his great declaration, Yahweh, or I am, the way and the truth and the life. Let's pray and let's respond. Father, we thank you for...